Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg is Professor Amin Yang, who is with the Department of International Relations at the University of the Witwatersrand. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, you are a political scientist with an interest in the history of state formation and related ideas of sovereignty, statehood, community and order. And you're based, as I said in in the introduction, at the School of International Relations at WITS. Please, can you tell us more about the school and the work that you do? The Department of International Relations is one of seven, actually, um, um, units in the School of Social Sciences at WITS University. So we train young students coming um, uh, out of high school to learn about the discipline of international relations, the the basics, methodology, epistemology, um, concept, major events in the history of the making of international relations. So they they learn about regions, multilateral um, organizations such as the United Nations, um, the African Union. So really, I mean, we get them trained in the basic knowledge that every a university student uh, specializing in international relations is is um, expected to learn. And our students often um, leave to join non-governmental organizations. Some of them who are lucky enough to join DERCO also would have a head start because they would have known and uh, mastered the basics of, of the concepts and the practice of international relations. And arguably, given COVID-19, it, we are really living through a, a major event that is having a dramatic impact on not just relations within the South African context, but it's, it's a global pandemic. Yes, I think this is, this is a perfect, perfect example of what it means to live in a globalized world. Borders mean very little when it comes to um, phenomena, um, when it comes to social Phenomena such as a virus um, circulating around. So, and I think this is actually a very good moment to to rethink what it means to be an international community of states, but also of nations, and also what it means to to practice an idea of cosmopolitanism. And what it really means, what cosmopolitanism means, is that as a, as a human being, I have a duty towards another human being, regardless of whether they live in the same country or, or not. Because what affects me affects um, another individual. So the, this, the, the, um, the experience of interdependence is very much epitomized by, by this, uh, uh, this uh, um, disease that we are uh, confronting at the moment. So hopefully it will inspire, it will force leaders to, to, to rethink um, collectively how to tackle such problems um, and, and rather than a tendency to withdraw into internationalism, all kinds of nationalism. Can you tell us more about some of the pertinent areas of research that you're doing? Um, so so as, as an international relations scholar, I'm 
primarily interested in, let's say, the foundational concept of the discipline. And so this is to do with the idea of um, sovereignty, which is the which is the, the quality of being a state. Um, I'm interested in questions of security in relation to the state, but also the um, idea of um, the, the, the international as the sphere in which states um, coexist. Um, I'm interested in peace and security as a field of study. So my, my primary research is really with the idea of the state and, and everything that is related to the state. What makes a state a state? Um, how does a state exist alongside other states? And, and, and in particular, when it comes to the um, um, African continent, how does the history of um, imperialism, colonialism, um, subjugation, et cetera, et cetera, the encounter with the external world impacted on the kind of institutions that we have on the continent? So how do you understand the history and the conditions of the African state? It's such an interesting debate for me on on the way that that states are, are formulated and all of the factors that go into it and that it is ongoing it, it's continuous have you got a, a particular case which which is of of significant interest to you where you've you've looked at the studies of of democracy and the formation of of the state so i so i tend to have a kind of broad um perspective so my interest is really historical and also um, theoretical. So I, I do every once in a while um, um, delve into specific examples, but I want to think about the state globally as a, as a, as a historical form and its, its evolving nature and where it might be heading in the future. Thinking about one country in the continent, South Africa, it has its Africa agenda. And in that, out of ADERCO, so the Department of International Relations, saw it reorient its international relations from being a pro-Western posture towards a pluralistic posture with Africa as a primary priority. Through this lens, what perceived benefits are there to women on the continent in their day-to-day lives? So the South African government has got a, uh, a white paper, contrary exactly what you're, it was, it was um, elaborated, outlining its kind of perspective on, on um, uh, dip- diplomatic engagement on the continent. It has an um, Ubuntu diplomacy type of ideology, even though I have to say it's only in, in theory, in, in practice it's very hard to 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 explain and show, you know, where um, Ubuntu is actually the basis for the practice of, of, of diplomatic engagement. Um, nonetheless, I think one can make, um, one can m- try and make a strong correlation between gender and international relations. For example, when it, when it comes to um, South African uh, support to Madame Zanin Zuma's nomination at the helm of the, of, of the AU, I thought there was a very strong signal in, in, in terms of how they were seeking to push um, or at least support gender, gender equity, if you want, even though um, the um, AU is quite far away when it, when, it, when it comes to enforcing proper gender equity rules. So one may find um, here and there on the continent where we have gender gender equity that informs one way or 
or another, the um, electoral process or such processes. But it's it's hard when it comes to di- diplomatic engagement to show the way in which gender has been has been central or or centrally um, informing policy. You're so right. There have been very, very few examples of women in leadership on the continent, but yet it's such an important aspect of developing capacity for the future of women across our countries. And if I cast my mind back in relatively recent history, we've had a handful of female presidents, uh, Malawi, Liberia, Mauritius, and now Ethiopia, I think, is the only African country to have a sitting president. How do yes, you yeah. see female leadership in the continent in general? I mean, yeah, thinking, thinking. I mean, some from the um, Ethiopian case back to a few years back, it does feel like a, a regression in in the sense of having kind of representation at the highest level, which which doesn't mean that women are not presented at um, other uh, levels of government, but when it comes to the, the highest level, it's really, we, we, we barely see them. And, and I think this is not a, a good signal. Um, but to me, what is, it's, um, there is the problem of, of, of representation, but I think the problem is, you know, should be thought much more broadly, as it has to do with the question of um, inclusion, equity, um, but also um, political culture. Because if you if you have um, a, a government or a governing body that that is um, made of 90-90% women, but they are still operating on a political culture that is very much patriarchal or or deeply entrenched in masculine kind of practices, we don't really have change. So I think it's it's the political culture, it's the the social kind of conditions in which women have to operate, even as leaders, that is still um, making equity very hard to to enforce. Yes, it's almost as though we've got the, the, the culture dynamic, the effects of patriarchy, and if that is the ideology that you grew up with, you're yeah. unlikely to change it, which makes it all the more challenging. So whether it is a, a woman or a man, they're still putting through with the same ideals. Yes. And, and, and I think um, uh, patriarchy affects both men and and women because because of the, the tendency to assign fixed rigid roles to everybody. You're a man. This is how you're expected to behave. You're a woman. This is how you're expected to behave. So those lines very rarely move in a, in any flexible manner. So it's it's not. So when we when when we um, criticise patriarchy, it's not just in favour of women. We are criticising it criticizing it because of the, the its oppressive nature for both men and women, I think. And in the past, you and I have had interesting conversations in terms of how culture affects the dynamic and and the expectations of how women behave within their specific communities. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. It's, it's the way that um, men are socialized to treat women. It's the way that women are socialized to to behave towards men. It is the way that they are socialized to hold back, to 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 almost internalize the idea that they have a specific place and they should not move out of that place. I think, and it it's there are, I mean, there are many examples one can think of. You can be a a 
a female leader and still be, be being constantly um, pulled back to or, or reduced to the fact that you are a woman and you're expected to behave and speak and operate in a, in a certain way. So culture runs extremely deep and it's very hard to kind of navigate, yeah. Staying with that theme, some of the reasons or excuses, I would say, that have been offered to almost explain the persistence of gender equality include abstractions like patriarchy, which we've just discussed, capitalism, male self-interest, misogyny, religion. In your view, what else do you consider contributes to gender inequality? Um, I think, I mean, legal... uh Apparatuses across the continent are not yet quite aligned to um, global expectations when it comes to gender equity. So, so the law kind of varies across different states. So, so the, in and in a complex way, you can't fight culture because culture is very, is very uh, fluffy. It's it's, it's very intangible. Um, and, 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 and Your only recourse almost is just the law. So, so you have to use the language of the law to to redress wrongs, to um, correct failures, and to seek to advance the rights of, of women. So I think the uh, legal battle would, would have to be protracted if you are if if um, those who are um, supporting gender rights can can make progress in, in what they're trying to chart forward. So you're seeing legal practices as a way to to almost enforce and and make sure that aspects are adhered to to help in in the debate for for women's rights. I think I think I mean people generally are, are more inclined to respecting something that has been edited um, officially by by government by the courts, rather than because despite years of campaigning. I think you know gender activists have 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 realized they have yes they have made a lot of um, progress at the same time also um, there seems to be setbacks you know gender violence is still very prominent so there has to be a very strong legal response to it um, obviously um, accompanied by other kinds of measures but I think the law can go a long way in in helping um, make the message heard. And I often think about the the gains that women have achieved over time, but the reality is that we're still not yet at a point of of equality. What other indicators do you think there are which shows that we've still got room and, and space to improve gender equality? Um, I mean, and one can look at any any um, area of. Um of uh, work, um, um, often, I mean, like, in my, for example, in, in my field, in academia, the way that women are, are set back um, is in the, in the fact that a lot of things are not taken into account in terms of the, the burden they might carry and the time that they might require to move forward alongside their male counterparts. So we do um, receive, let's say, um, time off when you when you give birth, when you have to look after kids, but the, the time that you are given does not allow you 
to catch up with your male counterparts, um, the fact that you have to um, run home after work or leave um, leave early or leave um, earlier than your male counterparts. These kind of um, um, small things, like you know, little things in appearance, do hold a woman back in 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 terms of being at the very same level of performances as their male counterparts. So it's about the it's about the work culture when it comes to um, different um, industries. But generally speaking, it's about giving women the same kind of opportunities as men because it's it's not true that uh, you know equal equal training will set you on the same kind of starting point. No. So I think there's, there's, there's got to be almost uh, a gender uh, consciousness when it, when it comes to how how women would fare once they have achieved the training or what kind of in, in the kind of in, impediment that may come in the way of their training, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this gender consciousness has to guide um, the the people who are in charge of education, recruiting, um, uh, promoting people when it comes to looking at a woman's performance. You mentioned the word burden that women have to carry, and I think that that's really significant because in our societies, women still take on the majority of of taking care of, of the home, and you are kind of doing this balancing act of having to fulfill the demands in the workplace, but you've still got your home life obligations. You do, um, absolutely. And you're not supposed to bring your uh, burden to the workplace. You can't say, you know, you can't use the fact that you also have a full-time job waiting for you at home as an excuse for not meeting deadlines, for example. So this this kind of an, an accounted burden is really what is holding women back, I think. What do you propose as tentative solutions? Um, I guess, you know, this so so there has to be gender consciousness. I think it's just, you know, like it it, it, it bears repeating every institution in charge of training, um, any any workplace should have explicit policies that would take account of the fact that women I mean women may might be um uh, bearing a larger weight of responsibilities that are not visible. So these have to be made visible and they have to be taken into account every step of the way. Some of the examples that come to mind include setting up creches in a work environment where you've got easy access to your, your to your children. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I wish Vicks would, would have a creche so that I don't have to, to, to be late to my um, eight o'clock class just because I have to drop my daughter at school, I have to uh, rush through traffic, and I can barely make it to an um, um, 8 o'clock class. So these are examples of, of places that could be improved. The crush would, would, would help tremendously, for example. Reflecting back on some of the aspects that we, we spoke about before when we were talking specifically about gender equality and, and trying to accelerate development, one of the things which has been very 
uh, prominent in the last couple of years is about women's activist movements uh, across the globe where these movements are taking place to to try to ensure that the rights of women are respected, valued and come to fruition. In your opinion, what do you think we can do to help support these types of movements? So, I mean, so when I um, when I spent time uh, in São Paulo, in Brazil, I, I, I took part in, in many um, uh, meetings and um, of uh, women activists. And I have to say the, 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 the activist world is dominated by women, generally, whether it, I mean, whether it comes to um, uh, uh, racial justice, gender justice, um, uh, land justice, a lot of the um, most prominent questions are often taken up by by uh, by women because I think they they tend I mean like women tend to be very aware of the um, uh, trickling down effects of um, structural violence of um, structural in, inequity of his historical in, injustice etc etc so um, uh, globally. They can be supported, and, and and they are being supported. I mean, there are lots of um, um, non non governmental organisations that, that support women, but these are done in a very disconnected, in, a, in in not a coordinated manner. So you have, for example, the UN Women, but whose work is non is is not especially about supporting um, women's activism movement, but is also part of the things that they do. But it has to be. Um, better support for um, um, coalition activism, I guess, globally um, speaking, rather than leaving women to their own devices to fight um, states and power and patriarchy. So it's almost listening to you to have a, a focused agenda because otherwise little movements could could dissipate. They may have started out with a, a great ideal and, and moving in one direction, but if they don't have the support, if they're not all moving towards a common goal, we could lose the effectiveness of them. No, yes, um, absolutely. And, and this, is, this is precisely, for example, this is what has happened to the, um, to the global social movement, you know, the ones that they that has meetings. I mean, they started in, in Porto Alegre in Brazil and they've had meetings in, in different continents, including on the African continent. So they, they, they do have meetings um, which, which, which are supposed to um, uh, articulate an alternative framework to, the, to, to Davos, so the, so the World Economic Forum. So this would be kind of the grassroots counterparts, but they, they have been struggling to make any imprint, globally speaking, because they want to resolve a hundred different problems. Focus is is extremely important, um, not just for um, uh, strategizing, but it's also important in terms of uh, uh, fundraising, in terms of having a direction, but also to have a, a, a targeted goal. If your problem is the, the, the I don't know the use of pesticide, you know exactly you know who you should. Um, aim at fighting, but if 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 the World Social Forum um, um, is aiming at uh, resolving a hundred different problems at the same time, they're very uh, likely to 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 fail, and, and unfortunately, that's what's been happening. So the, the the key to to solving problems and and really any problems is is directing focus towards them. 
You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band. Also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today we're talking to Professor Amy Young from the Department of International Relations at WITS. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Professor Nyang, you have experienced a multitude of cultures. You were born and, and raised in Senegal. You've been educated in Japan. You are working in South Africa. You've been to Brazil. You've worked and lived in all of these countries. Uh, South Africa, for instance, amended the Employment Equity Act f- for equal pay for work of equal value. From your experiences, what are some of the positive interventions that you've seen in various countries that promote gender equality? Um, um, Off off the cuff, I can think of um, two two examples. One, um, Senegal that that have you know gender gender parity um, um, when it comes to Electoral voting, for example, in um, we have in um, Senegal um, an obligation to have own list, but this is the, the list of like um, nominated candidates in a, a perfect kind of male and female numbers. Problem is, even with that, women do not get voted in massively. So, that, so that that is a, a good thing in terms of in terms of legal advances, in, in, in terms of democratic advances, but, but, but we are confronting deeply entrenched cultural beliefs, beliefs that women's um, uh, competencies when it comes to uh, governing a state um, are under question. South Africa is um, interesting because I think it, can, it has a very uh, robust Legal intervention, and um, and this goes from the from from the constitution to a number of uh, legal um, adjudications when it comes to gender rights and a whole set of social rights. Problem is always problem of implementations, but also taking into account context as to how it can be used as as a resource in trying to advance legal. Uh, measures, right? So it, it, it can offer a good example of a legal framework, I think, for the rest of the continent. But um, implementation is always a problem. And that goes back to your, your earlier point about utilizing the machinery of, of a legal framework to help promulgate gender equality. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can't change people's mind overnight. But you can um, socialize them into new rules. The same way now we are getting used to um, um, washing our hands, using sanitizers every five minutes, minutes literally. So it's just one of those things. You get people to get accustomed to uh, uh, treating particular issues in a certain way, and over time it does become a new form of culture. I think it's much more um, uh, useful and much more. Um, um, productive than trying to fight culture because it's such a, a, a deeply entrenched kind of thing. 
Behavior is is certainly something which is is challenging to to change. But uh, given the the example of, of the world we're in, in now with COVID nineteen, and and like you say, we're seeing people wash their hands more frequently. We're seeing the application of sanitizers. Is there a way you think that we could start having attitudes change from a behavior point of view to to promote gender equality? Let's say in my in my discipline, international relations, but also, I mean, political science, generally speaking, um, gender is, is taught as a, as a sub-discipline, but it's completely uh, a, a, a separate topic from other topics. But I think one way to think gender, both in terms of the um, curriculum process as a way of just um, changing minds, is to incorporate it in every single subject that's being taught, but also to have discussions in, in classes about some of the inbuilt biases, some of the inbuilt reflexes um, that we have as men and women, the way in which we have been um, socialized in ways that we do not just uh, um, notice just because we have internalized, internalized them so much, like the way that we treat um, uh, uh, each other, um, the way that we think of ourselves in terms of um, students or in terms of um, uh, professionals, so I think it's just to a matter of in instituting a constant open debate, but not to confine gender in, in one particular um, section of, of, let's say, the uh, um, curriculum, but to have a much more um, mixed engagement of gender in every single topic. In your context, in the academic context, context, it really sounds as though you are making a concerted effort of, of trying to overcome gender biases in the classroom and, and teaching environment. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, um, it's um, so, I mean, gender, gender in, in, imbalance is very, very um, uh, pregnant in every single aspect of what we do, particularly when it comes to... Um, teaching very diverse classrooms where one can see that um, young women's voices are not necessarily the, the, the one that you hear often. There is a tendency, I mean, I, something that I, I, I noticed among first, first and second year students is that um, young women tend to kind of hide in, in their shell, I guess, because partly they get easily um, intimidated by some of the male counterparts who can speak with confidence, even even when they don't know what they are saying, right? So I think there's this kind of, you know, it 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 percolates every everywhere, just basically. So we can't, you know, fix this kind of um, atti- attitudinal uh, disposition in a fortnight. But what we can do is also raise raise it as a as as a topic of discussion in class. Um, Encourage also young women to to be um, um, actively debating, um, speaking up, expressing their, their views, and not to to think that they have nothing important to say. And I I, I guess because I'm a I'm a woman academic, a lot of the mentees that I have tend to be young women, and uh, and um, and also um, a lot of the ones who come to me and say you know they want to be supervised by me tend to be young women. So I guess that that is also kind of telling in terms of how they they, they can relate to me if they see that, oh, you know, there is um, a woman who, you know, who's a teacher, who's a re- researcher, but, you know, I, I think there's, there's that um, 
that that uh, motivational aspect to what I do also as a as a as a teacher because I make it a point to to have a discussion with them about the importance of of thinking of themselves as um, individuals as um, thinking human beings who have important things to say and who who may have um, like a lot of um, personal resources that they just don't know, but they have to try and tap into. So I think it's, it's really, really important. Um, I guess, yeah, mentoring is really important. And to me, it is very important because I, because I see it as, a, as an important aspect of my work. Well, you're a role model to them. You're, you're showing what can be achieved, what can be attained, and that it's, it's realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've, and, I've, and I've noticed that, you know, some of the female students that have, that I've, that I've taught in the past are also being um, interested in being a- academic, but it takes a woman like them to convince them that this is something that they could do, and not just something that is, oh, it's you know, it's not even in my within my reach. Right? So I think that has been an important aspect of of my experience as a as a as a woman academic, really. Now turning towards more of a, a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people speak about hard work, uh, others, for example, the fear of failure. In your opinion, what do you think have been some of the key drivers for your success? I, I, I prefer to think in terms of um, competence, competencies that one can develop over time through cultivating a passion for what one does. I am, I am, I am very passionate. I'm very, I, I am entertained by what I do. It's not just, it's not work. It's not just a chore. I, I love doing research. I, I love writing. I. I I like discussing ideas. So this is this is what what makes me happy. It, it really is what um, animates me. So 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 I am happy that this is also my job. So 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 I think what is important is to find what animates one. What what could be a passion for one, one one something that 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 um, that, that that would nurture you, fills you, and doesn't really feel like a chore. Or a, or a job. So I think um, uh, over the years I have been able to um, develop my skills in as a, as a researcher and a teacher and a scholar because I, I I like what I do and I'm I and I want to see um, ideas being advanced and I and I think about research as extremely important in every aspect of life. Uh, I, I see research as being tremendously important as a, as a guideline for for how states and institutions should function, but also as a way of just helping us you know, think through the kind of uh, problems and concerns that confront society. Finding one's passion is important, and often oh, yes. some people take a lifetime to get to it. Yes. I mean, there's no, there's no straight path to it. You can try your hand at... at um, Many things. I have a friend um, who I, I I went to school with in in Scotland. So she 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 has a a, a doctorate in in um, um, African studies, political science as well. And she and she 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 decided a few years after getting her 
her, her doctorate that she wanted to train as a doctor. As a, as, I mean, like, sorry, as a medical doctor. <laughs> she's, she is a, a social science doctor. But now she, she, she has this childhood passion of just becoming a doctor. So it, it took her a different kind of um, uh, uh, doctor degree to, to realize that it's really not something that she wanted to do. So she, she is just, she's just finished her training as a doctor, so in her late 30s. So I think, you know, it's, um, there's no uh, single way to, get, to arrive at what, you, what your passion is. You just have to find it. And it's a constant quest. But, but that quest itself, I think, is, is also defining for us as, as individual human beings. And I think the big message there is it's never too late. No, no, absolutely no, never, never, never. One should never ever think that it, it is late to, to do anything. Yeah. Going back in time, please share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult one. <laughs> it's a difficult question. Pivotal moment growing up. So I mean, so I, so I, I, I literally left my home when I went to uh, when I when I when I went to junior high school, so I finished primary school and I went to an all girls boarding school, and I would go back home only on on weekends. So I think there is something about the very um, early um, uh, detachment, if you want, or um, um, uh, separation that has defined me as an as an individual who is very um, independent. And um, just being used to being 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 on your own, having to f- figure a lot of things on your own, um, which you know doesn't mean that I that I don't rely. I, I, I've always had to rely on a very supportive uh, family, but I think as as just the way that I've come to um, um, operate, being away from my from my family has been very defining, but in in good way. I mean, there is you know it's it's it is always painful to live. Away from one's family, but it has also that capacity to shape you in a, in a different way. As we close out the conversation today, could you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to women in the continent that are listening to the show? Um, I, I really suck at these things because I, I can't, I can't think of anything. <laughs> this is. Words of inspiration. Well, I can, I can, perhaps maybe share just uh, kind of an what I what I believe was a, uh, like an in, in, inspirational moment for me growing up. So I, I mean, it's one it's one time that I that I had a, ch- a chance to meet um, a scholar, a writer that I really, really uh, uh, admire. Because his name is um, Joseph Kizerbo. He's a, a historian from Burkina Faso, who was uh, uh, one participant in the um, UNESCO um, um, General History of, of Africa. So he was, he was writing for UNESCO in the 1970s. So I had a chance to meet him just a few years before he passed on. And, and we had this very inspiring um, uh, discussion. And, and I think that also set me on the path of doing research in, in, in a field that is historical as well. Thank you for sharing your message. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and we wish you all the best in in the year to come. Thank you very much. 
You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Amy Young from the Department of International Relations at the Witwatersrand.